Well, we are blessed again today to gather and worship. Let's open our Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis 3, our study today, brings us to a subject that we don't really like to bring up, a subject that many churches, many preachers, in fact, many of the most popular preachers in churches today completely avoid. It's a subject matter that for most people in the world, it drives them away from Christianity, it drives them away from truth, it causes in their hearts an even greater antagonism toward God. What is that subject? It is a subject of sin. If you are new with us, welcome. We are doing an expose on our church, Makakilo Bible Church, who we are. Obviously, you will know our church best if you're here and you're worshiping and you're fellowshipping with our church folks, but uh, this is really more of a, a theological or practical introduction to MBC identity, and we're calling this introduction, Who We Are. So far, we've answered that question by saying, first of all, we are Christian. We are Christian, meaning we hold to and preach the fundamental tenets of Christianity, first laid out in the Bible and then subsequently held, by, held and articulated by Christians throughout history, held by all true believers, whether they work it out in their minds uh, succinctly or not. And so most major creeds, most confessions, most statements of faith by groups and coalitions of true believers will actually start out affirming these most basic beliefs of Christianity. So when we say we are Christian, what does it mean? It means, number one, we believe in the truth of Scripture. That's what we covered the first week, that we believe that Scripture is inerrant, it's infallible in these 66 books in their original form. This is truly what God has to say to mankind, and it is therefore powerful and sufficient. Last week we studied the fact that we believe in the triune God, that God is three eternal persons with one divine nature, something our minds cannot wrap around, something that we can't find an example of in, in nature, but it's certainly something that the Bible speaks to and affirms, and it's something that not only we believe in, but we delight in. We rejoice in the truth of the Trinity. Today, number three, we are studying the fact that we believe in the fall of mankind. We believe in the fall of mankind. With that in mind, let's look to the biblical account of the fall. Where did original sin originate? Just to get us started this morning, we're going to be looking at some other passages, but we're going to be establishing what sin is, what happened at the fall, and what we mean when we say we believe in the fall of mankind. All right, let me read this to you, Genesis chapter 3. I'm just going to begin in verse 1 there, follow along as I read aloud, it's a longer section, but it's the entire uh, first part of Genesis 3. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. 
So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called out to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field, and on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel." To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing, and pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain shall you eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face shall you eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. This is the word of God. The story of... Adam and Eve eating the fruit in the garden can, for most people, seem like a fairy tale. I mean, even if you believe like we do at NBC that this is something that actually took place, they are actual people, and this is reported to us precisely in the way in which it happened, it still has the sound of something so distant and so ancient and so mystical, it's, it's hard for us to really comprehend its value. We're tempted to sort of brush it aside as, oh, yeah, we know that happened, or yeah, and that happened. Maybe a few stray lessons here and there about not doing wrong like Eve or Adam. We refer to it once in a while, but we don't really think about this story all that much as though it's not very vital to our understanding of God and the gospel and Scripture. But nothing could be further from the truth. What happened there in the Garden of Eden defines all humanity. It defines human life from that point forward. It defines the world, the cosmos, the universe from that point forward. It's the reason for the the plan and execution of redemption. It's the reason this universe is is cursed and will one, one day be destroyed and replaced. If there were no sin, everything would be as it was at the end of Genesis chapter 2, perfect, good. 
If there were no sin, there's no reason for the rest of the Bible. And so, folks, we must be serious about understanding the fall of man, that first sin. We must do it in order to know the gospel. We must also study this in order to violently, violently oppose sin in our own hearts. It's important for us to study this subject, the study of sin, known by theologians as hamartology, the study of sin. We need to study this. Why? Because it makes us acquainted with the filth that sin really is in hopes that it would encourage us away from sin. I was reading, I was very convicted reading an old Scottish preacher, Thomas Guthrie, this week. He was preaching in the middle of the 19th century, preaching on sin. He said this, Who is the hoary sexton that digs man's man a grave? Who is the painted temptress that steals his virtue? Who is the murderess that destroys his life? Who is the sorceress that first deceives and then damns his soul? Sin. Who with icy breath blights the fair blossoms of youth? Who breaks the hearts of parents? Who brings old men's gray hairs with sorrow to the grave? Sin. Who casts the apple of discord on the household? Who lights the torch of war and bears it blazing over trembling lands? Who by divisions in the church rends Christ's seamless robe? Sin. Ladies and gentlemen, sin is that hateful and horrible thing that God despises. It is an abomination, all of it, not just the bad ones. Sin is what insulted the majesty of God, crucified the Prince of Peace, tramples on His blood daily a million times over. And yet, wonder of wonders, Christians, even believers, even those who are redeemed, treasure sin. They enjoy sin. They celebrate sin. We who have been set free from the the power and penalty of sin, we harbor it, we celebrate it. Brothers and sisters, sin is the cause for all evils in this world, personal evil, natural evil, evil of people toward one another, pride, hatred, malice, strife. It's a result of the fall of man into sin. It's the fundamental explanation of all the evil that we experience in this world. Why do we join in this vile thing? Sin is the blackness that destroys, and we join in that blackness every time we sin. But sin also provides that black backdrop upon which the beautiful story of the gospel is painted. And so we cannot say we are Christian unless we first understand that sin makes the gospel necessary. It makes it beautiful. We cannot say we are Christian without affirming the fall of man and their status without God, without Christ. And that sin indeed dominates the world, even our own hearts. Here in front of us, this story of the origin of evil in the universe, it gives us what was contained in the hearts of that fallen angel, Satan, his fellow demons, and how that evil breaks into the perfect universe that God created even to the hearts of man, the pinnacle of God's creation, and how the world then is catapulted into abject chaos and depravity. 
After this first sin, you just continue to read through the book of Genesis, and it just gets worse. And just the next few chapters, you see murder and polygamy, eventually bestiality. You see wars and fighting and death. It just explodes into the world. The story of sin is the same as the story of man. Well, how do we define sin? Sin can be defined as any thought, attitude, or action that does not conform to the character or law of God. Maybe you want to write that down. This is a sort of in the flow of many common definitions by respected theologians of sin. Sin is defined as any thought, attitude, or action that does not conform to the character or the law of God. There are those of us who have been blessed with hearing the oracles of God, the law of God. We've heard Scripture, perhaps even since we were young. We've heard the the, the Ten Commandments and other law that we see in the Bible, how God commands people to live and His demands on mankind. But the Bible also teaches us in Romans chapter 1, particularly 18 verse Uh, chapter 1, verse 18 to 32, that even those who have never seen or heard of the law of God, even heard of God's existence, they have no excuse. Why? Because God does place on the heart of every single sentient human an understanding that God does indeed exist. And God is a moral God, and there is something they must live up to. Even people who've never read the Bible have a basic understanding of morality. We heard a little bit in our reading of Romans chapter 5 this morning. Those even without the law, they have no excuse. Though all of us stand before God as sinners and as those who have violated God's character, God's laws. We fail to worship Him with all that we are. We stifle the conscience that He gives to all mankind. We violate the things that we know are directly commands from Scripture. We do this from the very beginning of our lives. Here in Genesis chapter 3, we find that, first of all, Satan tempts man to to question the morality of God. You you hear this right there in verse 1, has God really said? He questions the Word of God, the morality of God. It's almost like Satan saying to Eve, you know, God's sort of overbearing. Has He really said you can't eat any tree? Of course, that's not true. But he's trying to plant this idea that God's a little overbearing. God's a little rule-oriented. He's sort of demanding. God had given Adam the word. Adam had faithfully conveyed that word to his wife Eve. It says they were together there in verse 6. They were there together. It makes you see there's there's a breakdown in family order. Adam's responsibility as husband, he's just sort of sitting there like a dummy, watching this all happen, not saying a word watching this whole chain of events. Later on in the Bible, by the way, we find out in Timothy that his sin was actually worse because he wasn't falling at all for Satan's deception. He wanted to sin. He desired to break God's law. He wasn't deceived in the least bit. He knew it was wrong. He knew it was false, and he did it anyway. Satan's there with Adam and Eve. He offers, as he often does, he offers a half-truth, He says, you'll be like God, knowing good and evil, verse 4. But again, that's not the whole truth. Yes, they will know about evil and good, just as God knows about evil and good. But it doesn't tell them that their knowledge of evil, unlike God's, would be because they are evil. 
and they're doing evil. They're being evil. They're immersed, they're submersed in evil, just like Satan, evil in the flesh. And let's just follow this chain of events. In Adam and Eve's heart, there was birthed this idea, this, this desire, this carnal desire, this godless desire, and it fueled the, it was fueled, uh, the flames of that was fueled by this desire uh, of temptation. Here's something you can do, that they, doubting God's goodness, Eve doubting God's Word. Flowing from this, they shirked their responsibility to God, to one another. They didn't pause. They didn't hesitate. They didn't take any time to discuss it. They didn't go back to the Word of God, the command, the law of God, no. They continued to acquiesce to Satan's temptation one step at a time, their hearts being flooded with evil desires and really led by one single thought, I want, I desire. And there is Satan ready, giving them all the reasons that they can fulfill those carnal desires, full of pride, full of selfishness, greed, desire, carnality, rebellion. They turn against God, the God that they loved, the God who loved them, and they're plunged into death, the death and depravity of that sin. Look what it says there in verse 7, the eyes of both were opened, and they knew they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. What happened? Well, their spirits are now dead not alive to God, dead, just as God had promised. Their bodies instantly begin to decay toward death. An overwhelming flood of evil thoughts and desires rushed into their minds, and they couldn't look it upon one another in, in blamelessness. They looked upon one another with greed and filthy, selfish desire. It was, used to be man loving woman perfectly before their God, but now shame, filth, carnality. They're filled with vile intentions, carnal desires, selfish cravings. No longer was there selfless love, selfless love, blamelessness. There's a sense in which you can say that they're the only ones in human history to actually lose their salvation. They lost fellowship with God, having once truly had it. Verse 8 says, they used to walk in fellowship with God in the cool of the day. Now they hid from Him in the cool of the day. God comes for this fellowship, and they're fleeing from Him. They had sin. They were full of sin. They're full of wicked desire. Now they're ashamed to even be near their gracious God. Verse 9, where are you, God says, not because He can't see them. Obviously, He knows right where they are, but because He wants them to fess up to their sin. He wants them to own it and confess it and agree with Him about it and, and be cleansed of it which would later happen. But do they do that? No. Does Adam own his sin? No. He just continues to pile sin upon sin. God says in verse 10, have you eaten of the fruit? Adam adds to his growing list of sins. Fecklessly, he blames his wife. Ultimately, since God gave her to him, he blames God ultimately for his sin. And let me just say, don't ever be fooled, people. When you begin to excuse sin, ultimately, you are blaming God. You're pointing the finger of accusation at God. And even though Adam is blaming his wife, it's the wife that God provided for him. Now, just let the… When you're, when you're sinning, let the wicked words of Adam ring in your ears. 
the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit. You're blaming God for your sin. Eve, was she any different? No different at all. The serpent deceived me, and I ate. God, it's your fault. The serpent was here. It's your, it's your fault. Ladies and gentlemen, I present to you the entrance of sin in this world, and it was a gross entrance, and it was a vile entrance, and it just exploded upon this universe. These are the first acts of disobedience, and it opens up the floodgates of iniquity, not only in the hearts of Adam and Eve, but into the world, into their offspring, wars, death, murder, greed, anger, lust, pride, broken into the world, including natural disasters. The, the earth itself is under a curse now. We heard it. Cursed is the earth. The earth is now cursed. All of it began right here. And this explains all the evil in our world, bitterness, strife, divorce, rape, slavery, human trafficking, pedophilia, adultery, homosexuality. It's all originating right here. Lest you think I'm being melodramatic, flip over to Romans chapter 5, and it's the passage that Pastor Terry read earlier. This is really where we're going to land primarily for the rest of this morning. Paul is making the argument, talking about how one, one man's actions, Jesus Christ, can actually save people. He can act on behalf of people. Let's just follow his thinking here. Verse 12 of Romans 5, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who were sinning, whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. What's Paul's explanation for how evil entered the world, for the reason that we all sin. Just think of it a little bit closer to home. Why do you and I, why do you battle sin? Why is there sin in your heart? Why is there sin in your life? Why do your children, you can never teach them at all how to sin, but they just know intuitively how to sin. What's the source of your evil? What's the source of your strife? What's the source of division? Where does that sin come from? Verse 12, sin came into the world through one man. Look down at verse 18, one trespass, that is, that one sin led to condemnation of all. Verse 19, by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Well, this leads me to the first point today. When we say we believe in the fall of mankind, what do we mean? First of all, we mean that, A, Adam represents all mankind. Adam, there in the Garden of Eden, represents all of us. What the Apostle Paul is teaching here has become to be known as the doctrine of federal headship. I've talked about federal headship before, but I was talking to Pastor Ryan before the service. The last time I talked about it was in Matthew 4, and Jesus was in the wilderness facing temptation, much like Adam was. And then the time before I talked about it, it was in Romans 5, about six or seven years before. So, 
I think it's due time we remind ourselves about federal headship. Federal headship says that a, an individual, Adam and then Jesus, can represent humanity. Adam represents every human to ever live. He is our federal head. So when he sinned, we all sinned in him. When he sinned and was cursed, we were all cursed with him. When he sinned, we were all damned to a life of depravity and death. Now, I think a lot of people struggle with this idea because we're very individualistic, especially here in America. We're very individualistic, and we, we want to think, well, hang on a second. How come I wasn't given a chance to sort of go through the same thing that Adam did? I, I think I might have performed a little better. We're, we're prone to do this, especially with our parents, right? We, we look at the lives of our parents, and we kind of want to do a little better, and we evaluate, and we say, you know, they did this, they did this. I'm going to try to do something a little bit better. I'm going to be a little bit better. We look at Adam, and we, we kind of think it's a little unfair that, that Adam's sin and Eve's sin affects me. I didn't choose them as my representative. They're not my federal head. Why is Adam my representative? Why is he my federal head? I don't know that I would do, have done the same thing that Adam did. In fact, if I ever see Adam in a dark alley, I'm going to give him a piece. Adam, you idiot, look what you did. As we read, Adam and Eve sinned in the garden and they plunged the whole world into death and evil depravity, we, we have that impulse to sort of object. We probably, there's not one of us who've thought about this subject very much, who haven't kind of felt a little bit offended that this is not fair that Adam would represent me, that in Adam I sin. It just doesn't seem right. Perhaps we've even thought that thought, given the same opportunity, I don't think... I would have done the same. I think I would have been better than Adam. What a, what a prideful impulse. And that pride is at least one evidence that you indeed would have done exactly what Adam. In fact, you probably would have done it quicker than Adam did. Well, let me give you several reasons why Adam is the perfect representation for us all. In fact, this is an argument for federal headship. Adam is our fitting and our perfect representative. He fully represents all of us doing what all of us would have done individually and collectively. He's the perfect representation. Why? Why is this fair? I, I think I said this back when I preached it in um, Matthew, but I always like... A.W. Pink is an old writer, long since died, but he, he, gives a, he writes an article about why federal headship is genuine headship. It's good. It's a good doctrine. It's something we ought to understand. First of all, we should view Adam as our perfect representative because that's what it says in the Bible. This is what the Bible clearly teaches us. Now, going back to what we studied the very first week, our understanding of Scripture, this is God's Word, and, and this should really just settle it for us. If God says that Adam is the perfect representative for us, we should just believe it. That's what the Bible says. I may not feel that it's fair. I may not feel like I would have done the same thing. I may feel like, uh, you know, this is, shouldn't be this way, but this is exactly the way God says it is, and therefore we should Accept it. We just read this from Romans 5. As one man, as by one man, sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and death passed upon all men in whom all sinned. Yet Paul's argument there is people die, don't they? There's death in this world. Why is that? Because Adam sinned. And when Adam sinned, death came into this world. 
This is the formal grounds of our condemnation because one's, one man's trespass, death reigned. He says in verse 19, by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. God made Adam our representative. We know it's right because the Bible teaches us this. And that should be enough for us. But there are other reasons. Second, why or how is Adam our federal head, our proper representative? Well, drawing again from Romans chapter 5, but also bringing in 1 Corinthians 15, specifically verse 22. And that is this, because this is the only good explanation of the presence of sin. This is the best explanation that you can come to of why there is evil in my heart, in my family, in this world. We are not neutral. We are born sinners, and the best explanation for that is that when Adam fell, we fell. We were in him. We fell with him. We were cursed with him. God is dealing not just with a single individual, and we're not all just individuals living alone, and there's zero community. It's just me and God, and that's it. As much as you want to believe that, that's not the way God has created things. In fact, the way this speaks of it is it's more like not individual corn stalks, but a tree, and Adam is the, is the very stump. He's the trunk of that tree, and God is dealing with the entire tree of the human race there in the garden. God deals with the whole human race. He deals with the sin of the whole human race. This is all applies to us. So when Adam fell, we fell, and assuming curse upon the earth, this is the best explanation that you can find. You can look at other religions. You can look at other uh, uh, explanations for why there's evil in the world. I was reading this week about Buddhism. Buddhism says uh, evil exists because desire exists. That certainly doesn't explain natural evil. There are terrible things that happen, tsunamis and earthquakes. Even this week, people, thousands of people dying. That doesn't explain anything about desire, and it certainly doesn't explain good desires. What about desires to do what's right and to do what's good? Can't get rid of those desires, can we? totally insufficient explanation for evil. This is the best and biblical explanation for how evil is in this world. Third, Adam is our fitting representative because one acting as a representative is a common human and even biblical idea. We have no problem when people represent us anywhere else. Families with a father, a mother acting on behalf of the family. We see this in business all the time, CEOs, company heads representing the interests of the employees or perhaps the shareholders. Of course, in nations and governments, we have this even in, in the Bible in terms of uh, the government of the Old Testament. So this idea, one representing many, it's common and it's common in Scripture, and it's accepted by us in, in most ways. Usually, it's accepted by us in, in many ways, except when it comes to Adam, and we, we sort of buck at this idea that Adam is our representative. But you see this in the Bible, Canaan and Pharaoh and Israelite people, Achan, but also the good ones, David, and prophets and priests and kings, the good people, God speaking to that representative, treating the people, speaking to the people through that person. And so we shouldn't have a problem when it comes to Adam representing, representing us, him as our federal head. Finally, why should we accept Adam as our perfect representative, as our federal head? Why? Because we believe our salvation is dependent 
on the same exact principle, don't we? This is Paul's argument. We're members of a cursed race. We are fallen children who come from our fallen parent. And so, the right and unprejudiced damnation is upon all of us, but just as the disobedience of Adam caused the curse, so the obedience of Jesus causes blessing. In other words, if you want Jesus to represent you and to be your mediator and to grant you justification before God, you must first accept that Adam represented you. Galatians chapter 3 verse 13 says, Jesus was made a curse for us. He stood on behalf of us who believe. I often quote 2 Corinthians 5.21, He made Him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God. If you think it's not right or not fair that Adam is your representative, then you must not accept Jesus as your representative, as your new head, your new representative. That's why it says there in Romans chapter 5, beginning of verse 18, Therefore, as one trespass led to the condemnation for all men, all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. So if you want Jesus as your federal head, you must accept Adam first as your federal head. You sinned in Adam. We all sinned in Adam. We all sinned there in the garden. Whether you think that's fair or not, that's what the Bible teaches. It's the best explanation. And if you want the federal headship of Jesus, you must accept the federal headship of Adam. So when we say we believe in the fall of mankind, it first of all means we believe that in Adam, all of us sinned. Number two, by saying we believe in the fall of mankind, it also means what it says there in Romans 5, that second, Adam's sin brought death to all mankind. Adam's sin brought death to all mankind. You remember back in Genesis what we read, what did God say would happen when He sinned, when they sinned? You shall surely, what? Die. And they did. How so? Well, we need to mark what the meaning of death is, how the word death is used in the Bible. It basically represents two things that I can think of, and it's clear that these two things happen. Death, in the first and most obvious way, means physical death. Your body stops functioning, you pass away. Physical death, however, is not simply that moment where everything stops. People sometimes say, I'm not afraid of death, I'm afraid of dying. Well, death is... It includes dying, the process of dying. And that process immediately started when Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden. Though they could have lived eternally feeding on that tree that gave life, eternal life, God barred them from it, and the process of decay began immediately. They and the world with them, the animals with them, Physical death was introduced, and they immediately started to die. You could say death was unleashed upon their bodies 
and the physical universe with Adam's sin. Death also means separation from God. That also happened instantly, didn't it? Right there in the garden, we see that separation. They're trying to hide. They're running from God, the God whom they loved, the God who loved them, the God with whom they walked in the cool of the day. Suddenly, they're, they're fleeing from that God. They're running away from that God. They don't want to be with that God. In fact, this is exactly how the Bible in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, and Colossians 2, verse 13, describe mankind without Christ that we are spiritually dead, totally dead, separated from God, dead in sin, completely incapable of saving themselves, separated from God. The final death, of course, is when Satan and all his demons and all those who refuse to have faith in Christ will be in eternity. They will have bodies. In fact, the the book of Revelation teaches that they'll have bodies that are given to them that will, in essence, live, in a sense, in eternity, but they will be separated. It's eternal death, eternally separated. They will writhe in pain apart from God for all eternity. In a sense, they will be dead. Well, Christians have affirmed from the beginning that man is born in sin. Even King David acknowledged when he was confessing his sin after Nathan confronted him that he was born a sinner. It wasn't given to him later. It was something that was true to his heart. He was dead in sin. What did he ask for? He asked for the Spirit of God. He asked for the joy of God's salvation to come to him. He asked for God to do a work Well, this brings us to the final point. What do we mean when we say we believe in the fall of mankind? It means that, third, every human is condemned without divine intervention. Every human is condemned without divine intervention. Look back there in Romans chapter 5, in the middle of verse 16, look at that phrase, for the judgment following one trespass, brought condemnation. Verse 18, the very beginning, one trespass led to condemnation. Now flip back to chapter 3 of Romans, and this subject we'll, we'll get into in a deeper way later on in this study. I don't want to spoil it. Let me give you a little overview of what's happening in Romans to this point. Chapters 1 and 2 of Romans demonstrate that everyone sins because they are at heart spiritually dead. And what Paul does is he he demonstrates this truth from what we see in mankind. And he he goes through humans. He he starts with the very worst of humans, the people that that are vile, the people that are idolaters and deviants and so forth. And everyone would agree, all these people are are sinners. They're certainly condemned. But then he takes a step up. What about the people that aren't bad? Maybe they're not believers. Maybe they're not Jewish people, but, but they're morally good people. What about those people? And he, he demonstrates that even those people are failures. Even those people are condemned. He goes one step up. What about the people that are morally good and they happen to be in the right religion? They're, they're religious people. 
He says even those people are condemned. And then he takes it to the, the highest kind of person. That is someone who's morally good and, and a faithful religious person. They're really involved in religion. What about those people? Even faithful Jews who are very moral face condemnation. So we're left there at the end of chapter 2, sort of asking Paul the question, well, Paul, is anyone good? Is anyone in this world good enough to please God? Can anyone make it? Is, does anyone have the moral ability to, to save themselves and give work enough credit towards God that they can get to heaven? Is anyone righteous enough? Romans chapter 3, verse 10, Paul answers, none is righteous. No, not one. He's quoting from Psalm 14, a Psalm of David, and I love the way that David puts it there. He says, none is righteous. You might hear someone say, well, there's a few people. No, not one. None is righteous. Not one. Verse 11, no one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. He goes on to say, and we heard this earlier in our worship service, all have sinned and fall short of God's glory. In other words, they see this wonderful thing that the triune God has done, this creation, this, this beautiful thing, the conscience that He gives every man, the, the morality that He gives every person, the, the, the even foggy knowledge of God, and they, they stifle it. They, they run away from it. They violate God's character, and then give them the law, give them truth, give them the oracles of God, and what do they do? They rebel, just as Israel did. Therefore, we are all condemned. When we say we believe in the fall of man, we are saying we believe that every human being by default is condemned without divine intervention. So that's not the end of the story. If somehow we can get a new Adam, that Adam that would be made our representative that would not fail under temptation. And Adam even then, who, who would not fail, but then would pay the penalty for our sin. If we can be somehow found in Him, what is Romans chapter 8, verse 1? There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What a glorious truth. What a wonderful reality that we can rejoice in, that Jesus is our new federal head, and we can be made righteous in Him. And we'll talk about that more next time. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for Your truth. We pray that these truths have buried themselves deep in us. We pray that this has changed us and molded us and made us today. I pray that we will become more committed to these things. Lord, for Christians, I pray that You would invigorate their fight against sin, invigorate their desire for holiness and righteousness, that we would not continue to take part in that thing that You have freed us from. And Lord, I pray for those who are not believers, I pray that this, this very moment they will be convicted of their sin, their part. I pray that You will show them that in Adam they sinned and are condemned but if they would believe in Jesus Christ, they could be found in Him today. They can be saved. 
from that condemnation. We ask for this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.